Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three. I have my list and my red pen ready because today we're talking about the films of Stephen King. Joining me today is my friend Tara. What's up guys? Normally this is the part of the show where I would list all the films we'll be talking about today, but given the sheer volume of Stephen King, I'm going to just introduce the films as we talk about them and eliminate them. I do need to point out that we are excluding The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and Stand By Me from this episode because, arguably of course, those are the three best movies. They really are. Shawshank is fantastic. It's the highest rated movie on IMDb's Top 100. Green Mile is excellent. Stand By Me is excellent. I don't think it'd really be fair to go through all these Stephen King adaptations just to settle on those three. Tara. Yo. What is your history with Stephen King? Well, I was the kid that was reading Stephen King like in the fourth and fifth grade and thought it made me really cool reading, you know, Tommyknockers and Pet Cemetery and all that stuff. In the fifth grade, I read Misery. Oh, God, that explains (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. I remember my my teacher pulling me aside and asking me, my teacher pulled me aside and asked me, does your mom know you're reading this? Oh, my God, that explains so much all of a sudden. (laughs) I had a really early introduction to his writings, but also, too, growing up, you know, when, when we did, Stephen King was huge. The name Stephen King meant a lot. He was a superstar. He was pretty much like, I mean, how J.K. Rowling was probably, what, like 10, 15 years ago? He was like, if Stephen King had a new book out, everybody was reading it. With his films, he's known for selling the rights to his books for a dollar. That explains quite a bit about some of these movies, then, doesn't yeah. it? Well, and, and I think he learned a lot from The Shining because he famously didn't like that film. He explained it once along the lines of he is the grandfather and those are the grandkids where he loves them, but he's not responsible for them. There was an era around the early 90s, I think, when Insomnia and Gerald's Game were published, Mm -hmm. where his books started to become a little boring for me. That was also around the time of Rose Matter and Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, he had a kind of streak where it was all about like women protagonists, which is great, but it was kind of written in a strange, it was supernatural, but it was more mundane stuff. Dramas, really. Yeah. A similar writer, or a writer that's been compared to him a lot, is Dean Koontz, but there haven't been that many adaptations. Five, maybe? And Koontz has done like probably 40 or 50 books. Oh, or more. Film has never really been a part of that. Hideaway, Odd Thomas. Phantoms. You never saw like stacks of his stuff. If you saw somebody reading a Dean Koontz book, you're like, okay, they're just not smart enough to get the Stephen King stuff. So they're getting like the dollar store version (laughs) here. Well, some people would call Stephen King a dollar store writer too. There's a lot of people who really dislike his writing style. Yeah. But the last 10, 15 years, I've been really happy with his output. I think Under the Dome and 112263 were fantastic. I really liked Doom McKee. With Gerald's Game and some of his other stories as well, one thing that Stephen King has said that he loves to do is to write situations. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the criticisms that people have of a lot of his, his works. He'll write, no exaggeration, 60 pages about a woman trying to escape from an outhouse. And so Gerald's game, the entire thing is a woman handcuffed to a bed. And how she tries to get out of it. And Yeah, he can write 300 pages of her trying to get uncuffed from a bed. And it's pretty much 90% of it's all flashback of her thinking, how did I get into this mess? And oh yeah, my husband chained me up and then he had a heart attack. And I think that's a wild dog over there. I think the dog is now eating his body. I think that might be a ghost in the room or it's a serial killer and I can't decide which. As much of a fan as I am of Stephen King's books, I will say that he has a villain problem. Yeah. He always seems to go to the lowest common denominator. And so this guy is super racist, or this guy is super sexist, or this guy is super abusive. The main villain in Mr. Mercedes is just this gross, mean, incestuous creep. 
and it's just so mwahaha, I'm so <laughs> evil. But aside from that, I am a really big fan of his books. So regarding the many, 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 many films that have been adapted from Stephen King's works, I'm going to eliminate a whole bunch right off the bat that you've probably never even heard of. So these are films that went straight to video, to television, or streaming. So right off the bat, I'm eliminating 1922, In the Tall Grass, Trucks, Big Driver. Was Big Driver a sequel to Trucks? No, Trucks was a television remake of Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, but what was Big Driver? Big Driver was a lifetime TV movie. It seems like that would be the name for the, the sequel to Trucks. That would actually explain a whole lot about the Pixar universe with cars. I just want to see Mater have a freak out and start screaming, Who made us? <laughs> Mercy. Mercy? A what was Mercy? Um, I don't really remember. Anyway, <laughs> Mercy. Okay, like Mercy. Exactly. What the hell? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I feel like a, a Dean Coons fan right now. Yeah. Mercy. <laughs> yeah, Mercy and a good marriage. So I'm eliminating all those right off the bat very quickly. I will say that I did enjoy the short story that In the Tall Grass is based on. What was that one about? These people get lost in like a field and there's uh, a monolith. It messes with the passage of time. The movie's not great. So it's kind of like old, but instead of it being a beach, it's a cornfield. Sort of. Like you go sort of. I, I mean, my whole point, my whole point of, of eliminating these at first is that they made no impact. As far as a few that were genuinely bad, I'm going to eliminate writing the bullet. And I don't think Tara, based on the look on her face, has even heard of it. No, but that sounds like it'd be a really good werewolf movie. Let's just go ahead and eliminate Silver Bullet, since you said werewolves. Okay, because that was the one that was based on the cycle of the werewolf, right? Yeah, and it's fine. It's fine. I don't mean to lump Silver Bullet in with the bad ones. If you like 80s horror movies, I do actually recommend Silver Bullet. But Writing the Bullet, the movie was made by Mick Garris, who's made quite a number of Stephen King adaptations, including The Stand miniseries. Yeah, it's awful. It's genuinely awful. I hate that movie. I'm also going to eliminate Cell. I don't know what happened with Cell. Originally, it was going to be made by Eli Roth, which could have been cool. But the movie is awful. The idea that cell phones turn people into zombies is actually kind of scary. Just look around. Uh... The Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never has uh, there ever been a movie that was so divergent from the source material unless you hit like Dragon Ball Evolution. You recognize the material, but it's like, why did they do this? Why would you make a Dark Tower movie? That's 88 minutes. And it doesn't have anything about the Dark Tower, specifically the first book. But this is a good good time to bring up a point, though, with, with any adaptation. How important is it that the movie is faithful to the book? Because I'm a firm believer that it, they don't have to be necessarily the same. It just basically comes down to, for me, if the movie was good, we would not have a problem with it being different from the book. And a lot of times we see a bad movie, so we try to point out reasons why. And if we like the book, well, there's a reason. You didn't adapt the book. Or you didn't adapt it enough to make the make the comparison worthwhile. Yeah. Like World War Z, I love the book, and the movie is just the title. And the people who write the movie, do the screenplay, do the producing, do the directing, maybe have never even read the book, or they kind of looked at it, okay, it's about zombies, and uh, Brad Pitt's going to star in it, and we're going to make this awesome, and something about pancakes. I do like pancakes. But really, they bought the title. Yeah, you could have made any zombie movie. I will say, though, in, in this analogy to World War Z... I did like the movie, and I do like the book, and they're very different. Yeah, 99.5% <laughs> different. But another example would be Jurassic Park. The movie is great, and I love it, and the book is great, and I love it, and they are 
vastly different things. But both of those things, since they're good by themselves. Right. My overall point is that if the movies are good, I don't mind that it's different from the book. I'll go with that too. That's yeah. pretty good. So like if The Dark Tower was 88 minutes and freaking amazing. Yeah, no one would care. No one would care. Other bad ones that I'm just going to cross right off. Desperation, which was one of the miniseries. So we're not doing the TV shows, but we are doing the classic miniseries. Desperation sucked. Desperation was awful. The book isn't good. It was hard to finish. Even Ron Perlman couldn't save Desperation. Also crossing off Golden Years. The miniseries was meant to be basically a television show pilot. So it's really an incomplete television series. Langoliers. Oh my, I remember watching <laughs> this thing and all I could think was, that's the guy from Perfect Strangers. That's Belky. Yeah. That's a great example of Stephen King and his villain problem. I thought the main villain was supposed to be the Langoliers, which were these horrible CGI, like, monster balls with, like, teeth. Okay, so they're not the villains. The way time exists is there's just the present, and then there's 15 seconds into the past. That's where these people disappear to, the ones on the plane. They're stuck 15 seconds in the past, and the Langoliers are constantly eating the past to catch up to the present. And so, yeah, they are these ugly, computer-animated... Pac-Man meatballs with teeth, with like rotating teeth. But the thing is, this was a 1997 television movie. And so I, I have no problem with the way the Langoliers themselves look. And then you think of Jurassic Park and you're like, damn, that stuff still holds up. Then I'm also crossing off, sometimes they come back and it's two straight-to-video sequel films. Oh God, how many times are they coming back? Uh, once for more and once again. <laughs> but, is it the same guy in the same... like? No. Or- no, Michael Gross was in the first one. I think Jan Brady from the Brady Much movies was in one of the sequels. And I mean, I remember the original short story because it was a short story. It wasn't an actual novel. Right. Sometimes they come back. At this point, it's kind of just almost normal. It wasn't even that great for Stephen King at the time. You can tell that Stephen King is writing about his childhood because, because a lot of the villains and bullies are 1950s style, mm-hmm. you know, slicked hair, leather jacket. Those are the villains and sometimes they come back. Yeah, the, they killed his brother when he was a kid. Yeah. I'm also going to cross off the Shining TV movie. So Stephen King, as mentioned, famously hated the Shining movie that Kubrick made. But why? I don't remember his exact quote why, but having read the book, I think it's because the book really is more about alcoholism, Mm -hmm. and that's hardly really touched upon much at all in the movie. Kind of like Pet Cemetery, the book is all about grief, and grief is the main villain. In the book for The Shining... My impression is that Jack is just encouraged to drink by the ghosts. When you watch the movie, it gives the impression that the ghosts are causing him to go crazy. Mm-hmm. But in the book, the reality is all they're doing is encouraging him to drink. And that's not really touched upon in the film. They try to fix that in the miniseries. But using the funhouse mirror analogy again, it's essentially The Shining, but just everything is askew. It's like somebody wanted to take the Kubrick movie, remake it with no budget, and make everything just a little bit wrong. And you would do this because you just want to remake The Shining, or...? Because he, he wanted to make a version of The Shining that, was, that he felt was true. The 90s was a booming era for miniseries, so it makes sense that they were trying to grab another property to make, and especially because Stephen King wanted to redo The Shining. But it's bad. So I think it's time to kill some darlings, Tara. Okay. Because I think you like the Stan miniseries, Tara. I think part of it is the nostalgia (laughs) principle, though, because the book is really good for The Stand. I mean, to be fair, the book is also like, what, a ream of paper or something like that? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a tree. The Stand is over a thousand pages, and it is, I think, on the verge of a thousand pages. Yeah, because it's one where, I mean, those two make sense being miniseries, because you really can't do a movie. It'd be like freaking five, six hours. 
I do not like it. Chapter two, the film. I'm not just disappointed by it. I think it's bad. I honestly didn't like either of them. There's a lot to like in the first one. I think the kids are great. The, uh, the kids, were, the kids were amazing. Yeah. The, the problem with the first film, and even more so in the second one, is everything is undercut by terrible CG animation. There's a part where Pennywise, he's approaching them where they're crouched against a wall, and the camera angle is from behind, and you see his hand. And in the trailer, it's just a big, scary claw hand approaching these children. That's scary. In the film, the hand is like bumping and changing and extending. It's animated. That's not scary. And there are some exceptions, of course. Jurassic Park. We're oh, going to just we're just gonna go keep going back to Jurassic Park well, in, a, the, a, in the Stephen King episode. We're going to keep talking about Jurassic Park. But like the Rex coming out of the pen is exciting. Yes. But that also does mix practical with CG. There's a whole lot of practical in that scene. A oh, yeah. lot of practical. I love CG animation, but in the context of it, we're talking about fear. I will never fear what is clearly animation. So here's a great comparison with using a jump scare as an example. In The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, there's a very scary moment where two people are in a car talking and all of a sudden a ghost pops up in between them. And it's a very shocking, scary moment and it totally gets you. But if you look at Paranormal Activity or any other one of those movies where the ending is suddenly their face turning into eyes and a mouth that are just black holes and roaring into the camera, that's never scary. When it's clearly animation, that's never going to scare me. Look at the first Alien. And then we look at, say, as much as I hate to mention the movie, Covenant, where everything is CG. There's absolutely nothing scary about it. I don't know if Tara will be ready for this. I'm crossing off the It miniseries. I, well, see, the problem is you, you built up to that, so I knew you were going to cross it off. I'm keeping it just because Tim Curry was in it. And if we're going to compare Killer Clowns, like... I used to do clown work, and I did not do the full work. Like, <laughs> yes, I was waiting for that. I was uh, seriously You admitted it publicly. <laughs> I was a balloon twister for years. For a second, dude. Oh, my God. Okay, so if we can hold it down for a second. Okay, dip. Go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, go ahead, please. When I got out of high school, I met up with a lady who gave me her business card and said, hey, you know what? You can make some good money being a clown. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. I've seen it. I'm not going to be a clown. And she said, no, you're not going to be dressed like that. Because apparently there's actually different levels of this. It's just that there's different levels. <laughs> I've been trying so hard not to laugh. You were just horrible at this, dude. Can you hold it in for a minute, sir? Yes, please. I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. okay go ahead. So the difference between Pennywise... The two clowns are totally different. One is more Victorian-style, kind of creepy, mime-style stuff. The movies. The miniseries, if you saw Pennywise, you'd be like, okay, he's kind of creepy, but otherwise he passes off as a kind of normal circus clown. The outfit, the hair, the nose. Are you saying that Tim Curry in the It miniseries is scarier because he's not playing a scary clown? Precisely. I will agree completely that's a huge difference between the It Mini and the movies, mm -hmm. because in the movies, he's playing a mwahaha scary clown. Pennywise is never presented as just a clown. If you were a kid and you see Pennywise from the movies, you would never go near him in a million years. I don't care what he's passing out. You're not going near right. that guy. Yeah. And I will say his performance is great when it's just him mm -hmm. acting. But I think there's something more fearful about Tim Curry because he looks like just a clown. Tim Curry's Pennywise, until he opens his mouth, his makeup is spot on. They don't have any diamonds. There's no sharp shapes in this. 
if you saw him just standing there with a bunch of balloons, like, okay, Timmy, go get the balloon. Kids are going to go to that clown. Yeah, he's not far off from the way Bozo the Clown looked in that era. Looked exactly very similar. Let me ask you this. Are you hanging on to the It miniseries for now, or are you pretty certain already that that is one of your three? I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to have the option to drop it, I would think. Well, I am crossing off the It miniseries. All right, so we moved away from It. Now what are we going to do? I'm going to eliminate a few chunks of films, starting with the Children of the Corn series. There are about 12 of them. I At think. last count. How I do, think. Aren't these kids like in retirement age by now? I mean, <laughs> That's funny. I think Children of the Corn 1 is boring. I have a soft spot for part two because as a 90s horror film, it actually had the budget to go to theaters. I'm a sucker for 90s horror. One of the later sequels gave us Charlize Theron, so that's cool. There are a few things to like in parts four and six, I think. At this point, it uh, sounds like you're like discussing the Fast and the Furious movies almost. You know? Hey, hey. <laughs> Don't, don't knock my Fast and Furious. Family! There are some fans, especially of the first film, but I don't care. I'm eliminating all the Children of the Corn films. I like the short story it was based on, but the film itself, yeah. And then for the next batch, the Pet Cemetery films. So there are three of them. There's not more? Nope, only three, surprisingly. Pet Cemetery 2, then I thought there was three, then there was the remake. Nope, there's no part three. I like the first film. It's not great. It's hard to defend it. I like it well enough. For Stephen King adaptations, it's it's pretty close to the source material. Yeah. The movie was shot very well, too. But the whole thing with Pet Cemetery, the zombies aren't necessarily the bad guys. The Wendigo's not necessarily supposed to be the bad guy. In the book, it's very clear the villain is grief and not being able to come to terms with grief and suffering and loss. And part two abandons that entirely for just a mean streak. And there's something to like about the mean streak in part two. It's... It is a cruel film. Is that the one like the abusive stepdad or something? It is. Yeah, Clancy Brown, otherwise known as Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, what a twist there. I did not like the remake really at all. Oh, God, the remake. Bringing back the little girl versus the baby switches the entire story. I was excited for the remake. I should have known better. The next pair I'm going to eliminate are the two Drew Barrymore movies, Cat's Eye and Firestarter. I do appreciate the anthology format of Cat's Eye. Firestarter just kind of bores me. I don't have much else to say about that. I remember seeing Cat's Eye as a kid because it had, you know, the cat in it, and I loved cats. Uh, still do, but the idea of a little demon coming into your room, and the only thing that's going to save you is your cat. It's kind of terrifying. Yeah. As a small child realizing, this is another way I could die. All right, in the next few I'm going to cross off, I just don't really have much to say about them because either they weren't that good or didn't have much of an impact, but I'm going to cross off Secret Window with Johnny Depp. I'm going to cross off Gerald's Game, which was directed by Mike Flanagan, as mentioned. It's well made. I don't think the concept necessarily supports a whole film. And it's kind of boring. It drags a bit. It's a forgettable movie. Yeah, it's not memorable. You you mostly know it just from, there's a lady that's chained to a bed. And then Apt Pupil, The Dead Zone, and Graveyard Shift. I didn't know Graveyard Shift was a movie. Yeah, about the giant rats. Brad Dorff was in that. I don't think it had enough to be a full movie. It's just about workers going down into a sub-basement and then they get attacked by giant rats. The concept lends itself to a horror film. Yeah, and Dead Zone, was that the one with... um, Christopher Walken. I'm confusing it with the dark half all the time. Oh, let's cross out the dark half. The Dead Zone, was that the one where the guy falls into like the coma and then he wakes up so many years Mm -hmm. later? Dead Zone was good. Christopher Walken's great in it. Martin Sheen's great in it. It had some scary moments that really stayed with me as a kid. I just don't love it. 
on a list like this, we got to be nitpicky. When, yeah. when a guy has had like 80 film adaptations, we got to be nitpicky. And there's just not enough in Dead Zone for me to choose it. Well, it's kind of like Pet Cemetery. I'll watch the first one if it's on TV. I'm not going to sit down, like specifically pull out the DVD to watch it. But if it's on, the nostalgia factor kicks in. Yeah. But with Apt Pupil, it also has the, not just the overcast with the whole, you know, the director, Brian Singer stuff, but also... Uh, the whole Nazi thing. Well, and that's what the movie's about. He yeah. he finds out that his neighbor is an escaped Nazi. We mentioned The Dark Half. I love George Romero. I'm a big fan of, of the Living Dead films. But really, just like Apt People in the Dead Zone, Dark Half is fine. Uh, Timothy Hutton is great in it. Michael Rooker, he actually plays the same character as Ed Harris in Needful Things. The Dark Half has some good performances. I don't love it. But speaking of Needful Things, uh, I have a few of these I've marked as movies that I cannot defend as good but i like them dreamcatcher thinner the mangler needful things lawnmower man and maximum overdrive how do you make a trio of movies about a laundry folding machine okay (laughs) so so let's talk about the mangler then i love the mangler it is not a good film every once in a while there's a movie that you love but you know isn't good it's not as if you're saying i really 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 i know this movie is bad in every single way and there's not a single redeeming you feature about this, but Lawnmower Man 2 is like the best movie. <laughs> okay, we'll get to Lawnmower Man 2. Let's let's go back to The Mangler. <laughs> so The Mangler is about a folding press that's bolted to the ground that's possessed, which is a weird concept for a film. And I remember when The Mangler came out, I was so excited because the poster and the trailer didn't really sell the concept. It sold the genre icons. So on the poster and in the trailer, it said, starring Robert England from A Nightmare on Elm Street, written by Stephen King. Directed by Toby Hooper, who did Poltergeist. So that was exciting. Like, those are three icons of horror. And the movie's not good. I love it, but it's really not good. And Mangler 2 and 3, I don't even remember. They had budgets of like 70 grand. They were tiny little straight-to-video things. One of them has Lance Henriksen in it. I'm going to have to cross off all three of those. I do love The Mangler, but it's not good. I like Needful Things. It's fine. It's a little too dry. The book is really good, but good. again, it doesn't translate over well to film and so much of it is backstory or people thinking or, you know, you can't do flashbacks every few minutes, despite what some people think when they're doing movies. Yeah. And there's a lot of things they had to simplify in the Needful Things movie. There are so many townspeople characters that interact in this daisy chain of one person does this to someone else who does something to someone else that sets up all of these misunderstandings that cause the town to go into chaos. And there's just not enough time in the day to put all of that into a film. And so they did have to simplify. I have a lot of respect for the actors. Like I I love Max von Sydow in that movie. He's a very charming little devil. Mr. Gaunt, he's got to look the part of, hey, you know, this kind of, maybe not grandfather figure, but a dude you kind of, not a used Carl Sandsman, not a, a Saul Goodman. He's a dude that you don't suspect he's going to rip you off because... He just wants a little prank played, and pranks are fun. We all know that. Yeah. yeah, he smiles and he's charming. He's that kind of evil. And more dangerous because you're suckered into it thinking, well, I can get this super awesome thing I've always wanted, and all he wants me to do is literally drop off this box at some lady's house. Even once the townspeople have turned on him, he's still yeah. trying to manipulate people. Because that's what a good villain does. Even right. when his, his plan is exposed, he doesn't fall down to his knees screaming. He's like, hey, I can still maybe play this off. The next one across off then would be Lawnmower Man 1 and 2. And the thing with Lawnmower Man, I remember trying to figure out how they were going to make it at all a movie when the short story, again, only shares the title. Right. Because the short story is about a dude who literally hires a lawn mowing service to take care of his front lawn. 
And he's the god Pan. And the only connective tissue other than the title is that parts of the man ends up in a birdbath. And when one of the characters dies in the Lawnmower Man movie, a cop makes a reference to finding parts of him in the birdbath. And that's it. And it's so removed from the short story that Stephen King sued to have his name taken off. And so when you watch the film, when the title comes on, you hear a sort of sound. And on the second one is when the Lawnmower Man title comes up. But when you watch the movie, that first sound is originally when it said Stephen King's. And every other version since then has had that removed. Which makes sense because it, again, has nothing to do with it. And Lawnmower Man 2 does this weird thing where the character of Job has basically taken over the world. And the world has descended into this post-apocalyptic Mad Max city grunge sort of thing. But the child actor from the first movie is only two years older. And yet the world has changed so completely. It's like when you watch The Road Warrior and then you watch Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and you wonder, how many years has it been to where they're now white-robed cults in the desert because the world has fallen into such chaos? It feels like 60 years should have passed. It's so bad that the movie changed titles from theaters to home video. In theaters, it was called Beyond Cyberspace. And on video, it was called Job's War. The next one to eliminate is Thinner. It's not a good movie, but I like it. I, I don't really know how else to describe it. It's, it's hard to defend something that you know is bad. At least Thinner, like Pet Cemetery, covers the source material pretty well. But they just cut out some parts of Thinner that would have made it a really good movie. So it's an example of you missed what they didn't do because the movie was disappointing. So you're looking for that opportunity that they could have had to make it better. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, they cut out, they have in the movie the judge's character. In the book, he turns into a freaking alligator. It just ends on this kind of wet fart. Yeah, I like the ending. I like the ending of Thinner. When well, Thinner was a Bachman book. So I Stephen know, King but... had the, what, the four or five books that he thought were too cruel or mean to publish under his own name. From what I remember reading, he wanted to see if people would give the same credit and the same praise if he had a different name on it. Either way, so we're both crossing off Thinner then? Yep. Okay. Thinner's out. All right, so the one of the other mentioned ones, Dreamcatcher. That's just a train wreck of a movie. It's like four movies. It's like it's like four different ideas all mashed together. Dreamcatcher is not a good movie, but there's a definite like what the heck is going on factor that makes it very watchable. I'm crossing off because, yeah, it's just, oof. Yeah. I hate to say this, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, uh, you mean the prequel to Cars? <laughs> That's funny. You can't really make that into a great movie. It can't be like oh, no, more no, than no. like... You can make a killer truck movie. You absolutely can make a movie about our cars turning on us and killing us. That's that's a great idea. The problem is, is the Maximum Overdrive movie has a bunch of terrible characters who are just sweaty and gross the whole time. <laughs> you don't like anybody. And Stephen King has admitted that he was on so much cocaine he doesn't even remember. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't even remember making the film. It's a bad movie, but I have so much nostalgic love for it because I grew up watching Maximum Overdrive. I just remember the the book and reading how all these people are trapped in the short story. It's not even a book. And they're trapped like in a gas station. Mm-hmm. And the cars come up and start just like laying on their horns to, hey, you know, f- start filling us up. And the dude's thinking, man, we are all screwed because so much of the world is paved right now. And he sees planes overhead and he's hoping there's people in them. The next one I'm going to cross off is a bit of a well-known movie because we're getting down to the last few, actually. We've gotten rid of quite a number of these. I'm going to cross off Cujo. Good movie. Pretty good uh, novel, but... Uh... My problem with Cujo goes back to Stephen King enjoying writing situations. He likes writing mm-hmm. 100 pages of just one thing. Yeah. And a lot of people through pop culture know about Cujo. And Pretty so, much. It's a cultural icon. Yeah. Any mean dog, people say Cujo. When the kids' comedy Beethoven came out, people said Cujo. 
and in the book it had points of view from Cujo, which is kind of weird when you think about a Stephen King book. It's got a point of view from the damn yeah. dog. But he's not a bad dog. He's not a villain. He just got bit by a bat, and it's driving him crazy. Yeah. What people don't remember, though, is that the film is pretty much just about a woman and her child trapped in a car. People who think about Cujo now don't really think about the movie. They just know that it's a killer dog. They don't really think that it's a woman in her car the whole time. It's a movie that they could probably redo today and make it, okay, here's this lady like in the middle of nowhere doing a DoorDash delivery or something, and then the dogs are out there. But you'd have to have more dogs. You'd have to have something. Some reason why you know she's calling people out there to help her on her cell phone, and uh, someone comes in and gets bit or they get killed by the dog. The hard part of adapting a story like Cujo is that it really does have to take place in an area without a lot of people. Yeah. It has to be in a rural town in a junkyard because otherwise it would not take long for authorities of some type to capture and kill it. Yeah. There's not a lot of movie there unless it takes place where the dog can easily escape versus like, you know, the 1998 Godzilla where there a, cre- no a creature the size of the building can just disappear into a tunnel somehow. It was. It, it's just, you know, he's camouflaged, kind of like in, in Jurassic World. He turned on his, his magic frog DNA. They were going to do that. Th- that was going to be how he escaped. They were going to do camouflage instead. Because how is, he gonna, how is he escaping into the sewers when he's the size of a building? There has to be a hole the size of a building. Yeah, the camouflage would have actually worked a lot better. Uh, the next one I'm crossing off is The Running Man. Again, one of the ones where uh, I don't think too much of the source material was used. When you watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger science fiction movie that's yeah. super duper 80s, you don't think Stephen King. Like, that is no. that is an outlier. That is a film that does not fit on this list. I like Richard Dawson in it. He's a hoot. I love the score. Mm-hmm. The score for The Running Man is fantastic synth. But the movie is... Not Stephen King. It's, a, it's not Stephen King. It's amusing. It's, it's not even one of Schwarzenegger's best. No. The next one I'm crossing off is Sleepwalkers, which was not based on any source materials. It was actually an original script for and film. And actually not on the list until I mentioned it. I well, I forgot. Um... <laughs> Sleepwalkers has its pluses. It's a creepy, mean little horror film. It's got a bunch of cats in it. It has a lot of cats in it. I do like cats. If you need a horror fix, it's definitely better than a lot of garbage out there. He does have quite a few with cats as, you know, the bad guy cats, pet cemetery, sleepwalkers where the cats are the good guys, but the cat people are the bad guys. Cat's eye. One of the best parts of the entire thing is seeing just this ordinary house slowly over the course of the movie just be covered with all these random neighborhood cats that are laying on the roof they're in the yard they're just waiting for one of the cat people who are disguised as humans to step outside because these cats mean business and they're gonna wreck some stuff the next two i'm going to eliminate are going to sting a little bit for me one of them is terrible which is tommy knockers i don't know how they can adapt this monstrous novel into a standard two-hour film. And so they did the miniseries, but then they were hampered by what they could do on television. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of betraying some of the qualities of the book by not being able to actually portray them on screen. And even with the extended runtime, it failed. It's an epic failure. And I was actually surprised to learn this, but Tommyknockers, I believe, is Stephen King's second most successful book as far as sales. Tommyknockers is one of my favorite ones from Stephen King, just because it is a great book. It's not like It where it had a clear division. They could yeah. do one movie about the kids and one movie about the adults. Tommyknockers would just be a cliffhanger ending like Dune mm-hmm. where, you know, wait two years for part two. If it's something like Dune or Lord of the Rings that already has a significant fan base, then you can end your films on a cliffhanger or even a passive ending. And that's fine because the fans know what's coming and they can tell other people what's coming. But Tommyknockers, I don't think, is known enough to where they could really just make a part one 
that doesn't resolve anything and expect people to wait two years for part two. Yeah, because there's no real division in the book. I mean, unless you have the clock tower exploding. Yeah, so I'm crossing off Timeknockers, Rose Red, and The Stand. I went into this recording fully expecting to keep The Stand. For a movie that's six hours long, I have seen it so many times. I have rewatched The Stand almost yearly since 1994. I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. I recognize it has some of the same issues that we talked about with Tommy Knockers to where you can't really adapt it to a network television format because of the content, but I still love it. I love the miniseries so much, but I cannot defend it as one of three of Stephen King adaptations that gets to survive. There are other ones that are definitely so much better, and no matter how much I love The Stand, I cannot convince really anyone that that's one to survive. No, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm keeping that one. Rose Red, I keep confused now with Rose Matter. Rose Red actually started as a collaboration between Stephen King and Steven Spielberg to adapt The Haunting of Hill House. And when that fell apart, that script eventually became Rose Red. And I think it's a good miniseries. I think for television especially, it's scary. I like the characters. I don't love the ending. And Stephen King is kind of known for watching the endings. Mm -hmm. But I love the Rose Red miniseries. I can't really defend it as one to keep. No, I'm, I'm going to keep the stand just because one, got, it has a nostalgia thing similar to the, the It series, and it has one of the best openings at all. Oh yeah, the opening any sequence kind of with Blue Oyster Cult and Don't yeah. Fear the Reaper. Every time yeah. I hear that song, all I can think is the entire opening and thinking, okay, you understand the point of the view of the security guard who runs, who grabs his family and takes off. Right. Because that's what most people would do when they're faced with something like this. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't he, know he's already dead. Yeah, he's an everyday man. I'm keeping the stand because one, the villain is not ha, so to speak. <laughs> Randall Flagg is presented as the walking dude. He's the average guy. It's not until he's alone with Nadine or he's doing miscellaneous things by himself that you realize this dude's off his rocker. He likes to mess around. He's, yeah. he's not just dedicated to his goal. Yeah. He likes to please himself. He likes to please himself. And we got Trash Can Man. I will say, though, in defense of the stand TV show that aired recently, they did adapt the ending just a little better because in the miniseries the literal hand of god comes down like it's a, it looks like a giant spectral hand that reaches down and grabs the bomb and sets it off which is what happens in the book right 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 but when you're reading a book you can imagine the hand of god coming down from the sky and your imagination fills in the gaps and it could feel grand but when you're watching a made for abc mm -hmm. miniseries even back then even in 94 when it aired it was super cheesy. It was. I'm not going to say it's not cheesy, but critics of the, st the stand book have said the heroes don't actually do anything. They go to Vegas and well, what, they don't affect the outcome. I mean, but what they're supposed to do is right there in the title. They were told that what they had to do was stand. That's what they had to do. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to run in with guns blazing. All they had to do. Let's get there. And then, and then God came down and did the rest for them. That's true. And the, when you read the book, you do kind of question, some people might, you do kind of question who is the good guy and who is the bad guy. Because as you read it, you obviously know, just based on presentation of characters, that you know that Stu and all the people that go to Mother Abigail, like Larry and Ralph and such. Good guys, we're protagonists. That, that they're meant to be the good guys. But then you read it and you wonder, why do they think Randall Flagg is the bad guy? And we know, of course, he, he's the man who walks behind the corn and that he is a bad guy. But he makes a city... With power, and with, with they've power got schools, and they've and got... schools, and no drugs, and no crime. And so Vegas is actually a safe place, but he does rule with an iron fist. 
So he does put people on crucifixes. So I guess that makes him bad. But Las Vegas, his Las Vegas is a clean, safe place. Other than the rumor of him sending people to an airfield, which prompts the good guys to go to Vegas to try to stop him because they think that he might bomb them. So in keeping the stand, are you keeping it for now? Or are you pretty certain that that's one of your three? I'm keeping it as one of the three. It makes me a little happy that you're keeping it because I do love the stand, as I said. And so if you're hanging on to it, it makes me feel a little better. <laughs> now, I'm just going to say this very clearly. If he picks something like Tales from the Dark Side. Whoa, 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 or, whoa. You know, okay. He's like, Creepshow 2 is one of my three. I'll okay. be like, okay. No, oh my, it, it almost was. Okay, since you brought it up. <laughs> okay, come let, on. Let's talk about those three films. Creepshow, Creepshow 2, and the unofficial third one, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Tales from the Dark Side, I believe, started as what would have become Creepshow 3. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know the details of why it isn't, why they tied it to the Tales from the Dark Side anthology TV show. Creepshow was a bunch of short stories. Creep, yeah, the two Creepshow films are anthology films. So there's four stories in the first one and three in the second. Which were the four in the first one? In the first one, they have the scientist who hates cockroaches. They have the rich, spoiled family whose patriarch comes back for his birthday cake. There's the creature in the box with Adrian Barbeau. And then they have the one where Ted Danson is having an affair with Leslie Nielsen's wife, and then they both get killed using the high tide oh there's actually a fifth story i forgot about What's this the there's fifth story the sad death of oh i forget his name but it's it's the one with where stephen king is in it stephen king's in all of them though no 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 <laughs> no, not just the cameo so uh there's the fifth story with stephen king where geordie where a comet comes down and he touches it and it starts growing green moss on his fingers and then just spreads and spreads and spreads i love the first creep show it's fantastic i think the stories in part two are a little boring it's the raft the one where the Native American statue gets revenge on some some bad people. Mm-hmm. And then... That good, huh? What did I already say? So I, I'm guessing you're crossing off Creepshow 2? Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm crossing <laughs> off Creepshow 2. What about Creepshow? We'll get back to that. I am crossing off Tales from the Dark Side. I think it's good. That one only has three stories plus the wraparound. There's a story with a mummy with Steve Buscemi and Julianne Moore and Christian Slater. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to yeah. watch that. There's the best story that has Radon Chong and James Ramar as lovers. And there was a, a point in his life where he met a demon. And, and in exchange for his life, he just has to keep the promise that he ever encountered the demon. So he can't tell anybody. And then the third story is the Stephen King one with a hitman hired to kill a cat. I do like Tales from the Dark Side quite a lot. Are you keeping it? I'm crossing it off, though. Mm-hmm. I am keeping the original Creep Show. That thing has style to spare. I don't know if it's going to make it. But I'm hanging on to it for now. The next batch I'm going to cross off are all four Carrie movies. My God, there are four of them. Yeah. So 78, The Rage. What was the TV movie one? The TV movie is the one with Angela Bettis. And it's just a four-hour miniseries of Carrie. It's just a retelling of Carrie. Hmm. It's boring. It's not good. I don't like the remake either. The problem with both of these is that half of the book is about the aftermath. And they actually try to blame Sue, the one survivor. They try to blame Mm -hmm. her for bullying. And it's her almost on trial. The remake didn't touch on it. The miniseries doesn't touch on it. The Rage Carry 2 is <laughs> That's kind of just a weird 20 years later sequel that just I don't understand why anyone thought that they should make it. It's very strange. As far as the original, I love Brian De Palma. I think that he had a run of films that were just fantastic. Carrie is a classic. I don't love the film. I do like the movie. I do remember reading someone else how true this is that Sissy Spacek and Carrie Fisher swapped auditions for oh. Carrie versus Star Wars. So back then, 
there was a group of filmmakers that were all friends and helped each other. So Spielberg, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, they were all buddies. They would help each other with their films, with ideas, casting, editing. I don't believe Sissy Spacek was ever up for Leia, but I do think Carrie Fisher might have been up for Carrie. I don't recall the exact specifics. Okay. Part of the problem with the Carrie remake especially is that nowadays, and this, is, this isn't the fault of the story at all. This is the fault of modern cinema. You can't really do a movie where the whole movie is just built up to an end sequence that everyone knows about. Like Titanic yeah. is the closest example I can think of to do that successfully. We know the boat's going to sink. It's kind of hard with all the high school violence we have to have a kid, even one who's picked on, just go balls to the wall crazy against their abusers. Yeah. Because was, I mean, great as a book. Well, the, the movie is good. Yeah. Like, it's a classic for a reason. Like, there's a reason yeah. why it keeps getting released in different formats and different editions. Carrie is part of pop culture. It's a good movie, but I don't love it. I know that part of the concept of this podcast is to choose the three films that get to survive. So not necessarily my favorites or necessarily what's best or most important. Carrie was the first Stephen King movie, and it's good. If it was I, like a top 10 list or something, it'd be in there. Well, for sure. But if I was picking the three most important ones, Carrie would be on there 100%. I also have to weigh favorite and best. And I would not say that Carrie is better necessarily than what I am going to ultimately choose. Make no mistake, it's good. I'm not picking it. Let's go ahead and take stock of what we have left. So currently there's the Salem's Lot miniseries, The Shining, Creepshow, Christine, Misery, 1408, The Mist, and Dr. Sleep. And Tara, you've crossed off Creepshow, but you've kept The Stand and the It miniseries. Yes. I have eight left, and I have to get that down to three. This is tough. I'm going to kill a darling. I love Dr. Sleep. I think it's one of Stephen King's worst books. Is that the sequel to The Shining? That is the sequel to The Shining. I think the movie is incredibly well made. It has a lot of style. It has a lot of great visuals. There are some elements from the book I wish they had kept, but I thoroughly enjoy that film. I think the book is awful. And yeah, I was going to say the book I kind of did. Yeah. And luckily, <laughs> they dropped the ending of the book and they made the ending of the movie more directly related as a sequel to The Shining film. I'm going to eliminate it. The Shining did not need a sequel. It was fine as it is. I understand why they made the movie. I understand why they made the changes they did, but the book itself was just like, I don't understand why I have this. It was kind of like one of the last few books I actually bought is a brand new hardcover was Margaret Atwood's The Testaments because it was a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. It has nothing to do with the series. It's going to be awesome. And when you read it, you're like, I can't believe I wasted money on this. This is the one of the worst things I've ever tried to read that wasn't assigned in school. The next one I'm going to cross off is Salem's Lot. Yeah. And, and this one's interesting because it was a TV movie, but it was released on video in a shorter film length cut. And so there are actually two cuts of the film, one that's the full three hours, and then another one that's like 108 minutes. And That's a lot to do for that book. It's scarier than you would think for a TV movie. It's very well done. The length doesn't do it any favors. When you watch it over two nights with commercials, it's probably more than fine. But if you try to watch it now in just a three-hour block, mm. it's good. Um, yeah, I'm going to knock off Salem's Lot too. We've talked around The Shining a few times. I'm just going to say point blank. That's one of my three. The Shining, I you think, think is It's a good great. one. It's cultural. Did you cross it off? Yeah, cross it off. What did you? 
Oh my god. I, I just made him kind Why of. Why did you <laughs> cross off the shining? <laughs> because I have my three, and the shining is a cultural icon, but by the same thing we've already talked about, stuff like Carrie's cultural, stuff like Cujo's cultural. The shining, most people know not just from the shining, but from all the rips off the shining. Again, it could be a Stephen King one, or it could have almost been somebody else's movie. What The Shining accomplishes so well is that there's a constant sense of moving towards something. Mm-hmm. It never meanders. It's a long movie. It's over two hours. It always feels like it's moving towards something. And it's not something good that it's moving And it's not towards. something good. Yeah. You are on the train. The train is going down the tunnel. The tunnel is on fire. You cannot get off the train. Yeah. Uh, so I'm keeping The Shining and you are... Uh, breaking wrong. your heart and destroying yeah. the shining but yeah yeah hey, you were wrong for crossing you, you it off you can have but... the shining i'm gonna stick with pennywise who would actually be probably invited to the shining's grand reopening there are so many problems with the miniseries though it's so cheesy in a few spots the and nostalgia factor only carries me so far for the eight and, and so is part of the shining now it's got the amazing tone the, the shining <laughs> there is zero cheese in the shining not even in the pantry in the hotel there is no cheese in the shining the it miniseries <laughs> It's schlocky and melodramatic in places. And I do like it. I do have the nostalgic love for the It miniseries. Well, did Stephen King ever disavow the It miniseries? He was on too much cocaine. Uh huh. So in other words, he's off the cocaine now. And he has never once said, oh, the It miniseries. He's never once said, you know what they were missing in the It miniseries? That scene with the kids. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I had a feeling The Shining was going to be yours. Okay. Let's take a look at two of the more modern films, 1408 and The Mist. Now, The Mist was one where they had that twist ending, right? That That's what everyone was talking about. Yeah, the horribly depressing ending. Yes. And it came out on Thanksgiving. It was such a happy Thanksgiving movie. All I can think of is that one movie, Marley and Me. Where they no. put the dog down? <laughs> that's what people know about The Mist. They know the ending. When was the last time you saw The Mist? Because I watch it here and there. It's so good. A few years ago, but I, again, mostly remember the ending because it's so different so it's, from the book. Right. And it's, yeah, because the, the mm. well, the story. The story, yeah, it wasn't the, a book. The story ends mm. on a happy note. And yeah, the movie definitely does not. To me, the only weak spot of the mist is the CG. Yeah, the CG was poor when it came out. It's it's minimal. It's only in a few spots. But I love the mist. If I, I know I don't have room for both, or maybe even either. But between the mist and fourteen oh eight, that's actually a bit of a tough spot for me. The mist is clearly the more mature, better made film. But fourteen oh eight, fourteen oh eight is about a haunted hotel room. Okay, it's a hotel one. Yeah, and it's such a simple concept, but it's so well made. 1408 is a perfect bite-sized haunted house thrill ride. The Mist is absolutely the better film. So then pick The Mist. and. But know. I like 1408 more. Well, then keep both of those two and get rid of the other well, one. Well, the problem... Okay, I'm not going to cross off either one yet then because we need to bring up the only two that we haven't talked about, Misery and Christine. And Christine, of course, is the side-by-side that goes with Maximum Overdrive. No, Christine is about obsession. Christine loves the guy. Has nothing to do with just killing humans. It's it's worth noting, though, that when Christine came out over the title, it was called John Carpenter's Christine. It wasn't called Stephen King's Christine. I think I remember that. Yeah. It's interesting because Stephen King is so huge to think that there was ever a time where John Carpenter's name was bigger. Yeah, because nowadays you think of John Carpenter and you're like, uh, he did a few of the... Yeah, I mean... His name hasn't carried over the years. The name recognition isn't quite so much there anymore. No. Pairing Christine and Misery side by side, though, Rob Reiner did a fantastic job with Misery. It's very difficult for me. I already know where Mm -hmm. you fall on this, (laughs) Tara. Yeah. We're at the point where we really do have to kill some darlings because I love both films. I I don't want to cross off Christine or Misery, but I only have room for two since I'm 100% keeping The Shining. 
I guess this makes the decision for me. Uh, I have to cross off Creep Show. I can't keep that one because Christine Misery, 1408, and The Mist, 1408 doesn't feel like it belongs. I hate to say this as as a criticism, but it's, you know, air quotes, just a little horror movie. There, there is something to say, though, about films being succinct. You know, not yeah. everything needs to be two hours long. Look at Men in Black. It's a perfect 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's not really Citizen Kane. You're, you can I, have three. Oh, we got to drop one because you got the Shining. Yeah. So between Christine, Misery, and The Mist, I got to get rid of one. I've rewatched Misery twice in like the last year. It's good. I would say that's one movie they cannot touch. That's one of those like untouchable, amazing movies with Kathy Bates. And if you read the book and then you actually watch the movie, there's a few differences, but it's not enough to make or break either one. My problem with the book, with reading Is that the, you were reading it in the fifth grade, dude. No, no, no. My problem with the book is that so much of it, and I know it's supposed to be written in parallel, but so much of it consists of the misery book that he's writing in captivity. Yeah. And I don't care. So with my four that are left, The Shining, Christine, Misery, and The Mist, I could imagine people screaming, Christine or The Mist don't belong on here. One, Both of them could belong, though. Well, no, no, no. But I'm saying, I'm saying I can imagine people screaming about those two because Christine has not maintained its popularity over the years. Not a lot of people, not a lot of modern moviegoers are probably even aware. They might know the concept of, of a killer car named Christine that might even be familiar, kind of like Cujo. Mm-hmm. Even just like look at pop culture, pop culture awareness. People still talk about The Shining. People still yeah. talk about, well, even Creepshow. Misery still comes up. The Mist in that ending still comes yeah. up. The Mist in the ending is what it's mostly known for. Right. No one talks about Christine. Carrie is still around. People know Pet Cemetery. More People than know Pet Cemetery. Even in the Joss Whedon version of Justice League, the Flash mentions Pet Cemetery. I mean, hell, they talk more about like Children of the Corn than they do Christine. Yeah, in arguably, culture. yeah, and, and and that probably has a lot to do with the continuous sequels that that franchise strangely keeps getting. This is the Children of the Grandchildren of the yeah. Corn. <laughs> that would be a great title. Um, <laughs> the Mist is so good, but I'm crossing off the Mist. That's tough for me. I love the Mist. I've rewatched that one also probably twice in the last year. So that leaves me with my three. I think that wraps this up. Tara, what are your three surviving films? Uh, We got The Stand. We got the It miniseries with my good friend Pennywise. And we got Misery because everybody loves a great chopping. And so for me, playing this week at Valley West Cinemas are The Shining, Christine, and Misery. What do you think? Let us know on Twitter at VWestCinemas. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash valleywestcinemas. Please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those reviews help us a ton. I'm your host, Aaron. I was joined today by Tara, and we'll see you next time.